Live from New York, I'm Julian Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Situation stable. Ukraine's president says the economic panic over Russia is, quote, under control. Pumping pressure, OPEC Plus rejects calls to increase oil supplies. As easy as ABC Online. Advertising spells success for Alphabet. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Wednesday. U.S. investors begin the month with a buying spree. Tech was near a bear market and now it's three rallies for three. A roaring start to the year of the tiger. But of course, there's no guarantee. Beijing hoping for some tiger tailwinds and upcoming Olympic Games glee. No time for a pause, though. The Nasdaq clawing its way back after the best three-day rally since the start of lockdowns. Europe higher for a third straight session, too. As you can see, Google parent Alphabet, as I mentioned, leading the feline charge up 10% in the pre-market session. Surging sales and a scintillating stock split. The news there. That, of course, suddenly opens up the stock to smaller investors and perhaps a Dow index entry too. Who knows? I want to tell you what, one thing we do know, U.S. private sector jobs growth is slowing dramatically down by more than 300,000 last month against expectations for a modest rise. And that, of course, adding to some disquiet about a dramatic slowdown in the first quarter U.S. GDP numbers. Nothing like the pressure facing Ukraine's economy due to the ongoing geopolitical uncertainty there. The president as I mentioned, saying today things have stabilized, though the currency, and you can take a look at the chart there, has weakened by some 4% versus the US dollar this year. That makes them one of the world's worst performers. And that is where we begin. UK's president says a state of economic, quote, panic over tensions with Russia is stabilizing. But new satellite images reveal Russia has further bolstered its military presence in the region. And on Tuesday, Russia's President Putin spoke publicly about the crisis for the first time in weeks. He accused the West of trying to lure Russia into armed conflict. And we've just learned the United States is going to deploy thousands of additional troops to Eastern Europe. Nick Robertson is in Moscow for us. Nick, good to have you with us. I believe the Pentagon's going to hold a press conference in the next hour. What more do we know about the kind of numbers that we're perhaps talking about in terms of troops? Yeah, the President Biden had previously said uh, that he was putting troops on a higher level of alert to be deployed to Eastern Europe. Uh, he'd spoken with Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria about their willingness to take uh, some numbers of troops, um, possibility of Poland and the Baltic states. The numbers that were, were being talked about was about eight and a half thousand, and it wasn't clear if all of those would come from the United States or be redeployed from Europe. But it does seem to be sort of that sort of ballpark in the in the sort of, uh, you know, 8,000 uh, troop number region. This has already, the idea of this has already sort of been met uh, from Moscow by, uh, you know, claims that this is, this in fact is escalating the tensions, which fits Russia's narrative at, at the moment, which is, you know, it's not their buildup of troops uh, that they say is legitimate for training exercises. It is in fact the United States and NATO that are really escalating the tensions here. So this, this is something that is going to send, again, another signal to President Putin that he spoke about yesterday, that he's not getting what he wants, the security guarantees that he wants about NATO, about NATO going back to 1997 levels. Uh, so... At the moment, it really seems we're sort of in a, in a standoff uh, situation, waiting for President Putin 
to figure out what he's going to say and how he's going to make an official response to the United States and NATO's letters to him. But he did, at the end of his press conference yesterday, hold out the possibility of a track of diplomacy with the French President Macron. He said he hoped he would see him soon. And we know that the pair have had phone calls, have had two phone calls um, over recent days. So the possibility of a track of diplomacy, but not clear that anyone's uh, on it or even close to being on it yet. No, and while we wait, the United States seemingly bolstering troop support. We await that press conference at 10 a.m. Eastern this morning. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you. Nick Robertson there. OPEC, of course, watching these negotiations very closely too. The world's major oil producers are sticking to their current plan regarding output rises, even as oil prices hover near seven-year highs. Anna Stewart is on the story for us. Anna, no surprise there, no surprises in terms of this OPEC Plus meeting and the outcome and the decision to stick with the plan from last summer. The problem is they're not doing what they promised in terms of output rises or uh, rises already. So the pressure's still on and will continue. I know. I thought we'd have more anticipation ahead of this meeting. It was clearly very quick. Not much of a debate there at all. They are sticking with their slow and steady approach. And as you say, part of the problem here in terms of had they said they were going to accelerate their output, would the market have believed them since... They're actually not keeping up with what they've currently pledged. One analyst from PVM actually told us uh, that due to constraints both with OPEC and some non-OPEC members as well, he thinks the actual output level uh, is around 700,000 barrels per day below the ceiling. So there you, get, you question you know, whether you could break that link actually in terms of what OPEC says in terms of output and the prices we've been seeing. Of course, it reached uh, up above over $91 a barrel last week in terms of Brent. Lots of reasons for it. There's underinvestment for some countries like Nigeria and Angola. For the UAE, there are the Houthi rebel attacks we've seen in recent weeks. If you look uh, at Libya, there were blockades on certain pipelines recently. Um, so there's a lot weighing in there. And then on top of all that, we do have this looming tension between Russia and Ukraine, which has the potential, of course, to have major disruption for energy flows, major uh, impact potentially on prices. But it seems that OPEC is just going to wait and see what happens in that space, not least because Russia is a major player around the virtual table for OPEC+. And those high oil prices really work in their favor in terms of bolstering their balance sheet uh, and giving them really financial bandwidth if they are uh, faced with sanctions. Julia? Yes, we shall see. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. Now, lockdowns spelt good news for tech giant Alphabet. Google's advertising sales grew nearly 33% in the fourth quarter. Supply chain woes didn't stop sales of the Pixel smartphone from hitting quarterly records either. Plus, the company announced a new stock split coming this summer. CNN's Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, much to discuss on this. But what it says to me is the companies that control the key gateways to e-commerce, to hybrid work, to streaming entertainment services have done incredibly well through this period and advertisers know it. Oh, without question, Julia. Advertisers are flocking to the biggest platforms with the most users, and that's why Alphabet is doing well. We expect um, you know, strong numbers from uh, Meta, the owner of a little company named Facebook. But when you look at Alphabet, Google ad revenue surging, what's really impressive is that YouTube continues to be a juggernaut, so much so that YouTube's ad revenue in the quarter, Julia, eclipsed the total revenue for Netflix in the fourth quarter. Now, of course, not apples to apples. Netflix is a subscription-based model. YouTube is primarily an ad model. But it is stunning that, at least in terms of revenue, YouTube is bigger than Netflix. 
Yeah, and YouTube doesn't have to pay $20 billion or whatever it is this year to create content to put on there as well. Yeah. It's, um, it's pretty genius. Yeah. Well, yes. Speaking of the stock split, this is important too, because in terms of the share price, it's actually normally doing anything in terms of the value of the company, but it does make the shares more accessible to smaller retail players, particularly if you're lopping so much um, in terms of the share price itself. So a 20 to 1 share price. But explain this, because it could also mean entry to the Dow as well. Index. Yeah, there's, there's a lot at play here, Julia. You obviously mentioned Google Alphabet currently trades around $3,000 a share. That's not affordable for a lot of investors. Yes, we do have fractional trading so that people can buy a piece. But with the 20 for one split, the stock price goes down to about $150 a share when the split is over. The value of the company doesn't change at all. But because the Dow is a price-weighted average, much like Apple finally got into the Dow after a split in 2015, you could see that this move would pave the way for Alphabet to possibly get added to the Dow. It's also similar to what happened when Berkshire Hathaway, remember Warren Buffett's company, did a 50-for-1 split of its B shares back when they bought Burlington Northern, the huge railroad, and that in 2010 finally paved the way for Berkshire to get into the S&P 500. So, I'm not so sure that Alphabet, if you ask their executives, do, are we doing this because you want to get in the Dow? They probably wouldn't publicly admit that, but privately, I'm sure they would love to be one of the Dow 30 because it's such an endorsement of the company and the business model. Yes. And the importance to the American economy. In public, hmm, in private, yes, please. Paula Monica, thank you for that. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has endured a mauling by lawmakers over the so-called Partygate scandal. In the Commons, the opposition Labour leader raised the possibility that Prime Minister Johnson will be interviewed by police about a succession of rule-breaking parties at number 10 over the lockdown period. Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister, that's not going to work with the police. The curling competition has begun at the Winter Olympics in Beijing ahead of the official launch on Friday. Thousands of athletes from 91 different nations are participating before scaled down crowds as China limits potential COVID spread. And as we've discussed many times on the show, Beijing has created a closed loop system to keep athletes, coaches and staff separated from the general public to protect them. CNN's Selena Wang and David Culver show us what life is like on either side of that bubble. The motto of Beijing's Winter Games is together for a shared future. It's a nice sentiment, but daily life in the Chinese capital is far apart from the Olympic enclave within it, and absolutely nothing is shared between the people that inhabit the two worlds. Too great is the risk of Omicron for China as it tries to maintain its zero-COVID policy. In the week leading to January 30th, 237 symptomatic infections were reported in the country of 1.4 billion people. Meanwhile, arrivals testing and the daily screening of games participants has already registered around 200 positive results. The closed-loop system means those Olympic personnel who are visiting from other countries won't be able to freely wander and check out some of the iconic tourist sites like this one, the Forbidden City. For them, it is truly forbidden. Instead, for athletes, organizers, and us journalists inside the closed loop, 
Beijing has become a series of bubbles. Our hotels, the sporting venues, and places like this media center are as much as the city has to offer. There are even literal walls, security, blocking us from freely moving about. We're COVID tested every day outside the hotel. Technology takes the place of many lost interactions. Here at the media center, a robot serves our food. And there's a robot bartender mixing and serving our drinks. Only a limited number of Beijingers have joined our closed loop to look after and transport all the people connected to the games. And they too will need to stay separate from family and friends for weeks. Quite a sacrifice as the Lunar New Year holiday overlaps with the Olympics. But as COVID has disconnected Beijing from the international event it's hosting, it has also disconnected the people here from the rest of their country. And normally during the Lunar New Year holiday, major cities like Beijing, they're empty. All the folks who live here going back to their home provinces. But this year, because of the outbreaks happening all over China, they're asking folks to stay put. So you have crowds like this gathering at some of the more popular spots. Crowds that won't get to be there as the medals are contested and won. No sporting tickets are on sale. Instead, the government will issue some to a lucky few. Beijing 2022 is a tale of two cities. The hosts and their guests so close, but so far. For CNN, I'm Selena Wing inside the Olympic closed loop. And I'm David Culver on the outside, Beijing, China. France has started to ease some of its COVID measures as hospitals report fewer patients in intensive care. Authorities will no longer require people to work from home or wear masks out, outdoors, and they will stop regulating crowd sizes at cultural events too. The country is scheduled to further relax restrictions in two weeks' time. So to come here on First Move, the Reddit rally turned roller coaster ride, and meme stock Mean Streak takes the shine off GameStop Gold. Is it all over? We'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move. This week's risk rally in tech, injecting new life into the speculative stocks that were all the rage one year ago. AMC, the cinema chain, GameStop and Virgin Galactic all seeing strong gains despite ongoing concerns over rising interest rates. AMC selling some $500 million worth of junk bonds to refinance its debt to two. That just means they're sold at really high interest rates. Despite the recent meme momentum, the Reddit board favorites are still down so far, sharply so far this year. AMC is currently down, as you can see there, some 38%. Now, meme stocks may be clawing back lost ground, but some of the people trading them say they are having no such luck. As CNN's John Sarlin spoke to day trader AJ Vanover. A year ago, AJ Vanover was one of the legions of amateur traders who rocked Wall Street. GameStop, we've got to talk about this today. GameStop is set to continue their head-spinning ascent. Working at a battery store in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, making $35,000 a year, AJ struck gold on a $4,500 bet on GameStop. We spoke with AJ twice last year. First, when his GameStop options had ballooned into more than $1 million on paper. I knew I was going to make money, but I got lucky with how it actually unfolded. Then a few weeks later, when those same options had fallen to under $300,000. I'm still bullish on it at the current price levels. 
Now, a year later, AJ has quit his job, turning his once hobby of trading stocks into a full-time career. Honestly, I've had to learn a lot more now because nothing has acted like it used to. AJ hasn't matched the success of last year's GameStop trade. After taxes, a down payment for his house, and some cars, AJ now has around $100,000 left in his trading portfolio. I mean, it's always a learning process. This year shows the point that even the best of them lose some money sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of hedge funds that lost money this year. It's what you end up doing when you lose the money. If you learn from it or if you just keep trying to do the same things. Last year, working at the battery store, AJ was working around 40 hours a week. This year, as a full-time trader, AJ estimates he's been putting in around 80 hours. I mean, it, a lot of stress just trying to keep up with everything. And it gets to the point where, you know, it's like, well, can't mess up. It's constantly thinking about what's going on in the market. Joining us now, Rishi Sharma, global investor and author of 10 Rules of Successful Nations. Rishi, great to have you with us. And our regular viewers will know you and I were talking on Monday and I rudely cut you off for the party gate uh, breaking news. And this was actually one of the subjects I wanted to talk to you about. So we're going to start there, if that's OK. Um, the democratization of finance was one of the things that we talked about so much in, in 2021, this rush of many younger, what we call retail investors into the market. And, and it was a game changer for them, I think, but also for the structure of how the market operates. Yeah, that's right. I think it's great to have more participants in the market. But unfortunately, if you look at the history of financial markets going back over a century, that every big market top is usually characterized by a lot of frantic retail activity. We saw that uh, a bit in 2007 uh, or so, but much more in 99, 2000, if you recall. And then even before the big bubbles of the past, 1929, uh, 1973, we see a lot of momentum trading by retail investors. So that is a bit of a concern to me. And that's something that I've been speaking about in my uh, past few columns. Um, and if the other side of the equation, the insiders, a lot of CEOs, management people, they've been selling stock quite aggressively. So this is not a great combination from the market's perspective that you get a lot of retail investors piling into the market at a very frantic pace. And at the other side of the equation, you have a lot of insiders, corporate insiders, CEOs selling their stock aggressively. And that's what was going on, uh, at least for much of the second half of 2021. And corporate insiders are a better gauge of, of sensing, of feeling a peak? Because if we look at the activity that we saw in GameStop in, in AMC, the cinema chain, last year, and I just mentioned how much they're down this year, um, there was a, a, a sort of public retail, public sentiment that they could take on some of the big guys and the, the vested interests. And um, there's a lot of people who will have lost a lot of money as a result of that. Yeah, I think it's very different in terms of like the retail, you know, like taking on the big guys, whether they're the hedge funds and stuff like that, and you can argue about their track record. But definitely when management starts to sell aggressively and CEOs start to sell aggressively, that is intuitively telling you something. Now, they may be doing it for tax reasons or other reasons, but generally their sales uh, increased quite significantly in 2021. And on the other side of the equation, the retail trading activity increased a lot. Now, remember that this is really a 12-year bull market. We had a big interruption in the pandemic and a sharp crash then. But this bull market, at least in the U.S., 
traces back all the way to 2009, so the longest bull markets in history. And retail investors did not participate in this market at all right up until the pandemic. It's only in the pandemic when they got massive amounts of cash infusion and stimulus checks that hit their account that they began to trade very aggressively sitting at home. Uh, and that activity picked up very dramatically in 2021. So that is a warning sign typically. And we're seeing that in some way over the past few weeks and the incredible churn we're seeing in the market. And a lot of the stocks to which the retail investors are exposed have gone badly hit, notwithstanding the uh, counter trend rallies and big pops we're seeing um, off the local lows in the last uh, couple of days. So it just means more volatility. Well, it means more volatility, but I feel that there's a major trend change underway in the marketplace. I feel that many of the winners of the past few years, where a lot of the retail investors uh, investor interest is concentrated, those stocks and those sectors are likely hitting a relative peak in the market, and the market is going through a major leadership churn. In the coming decade, I believe the winners are going to be very different compared to the winners of the past decade. That's been the pattern of investing going back 100 years, that the winners of one decade, the big winners, are rarely ever the winners of the subsequent decade. So I'm very wary of owning some of these mega cap tech stocks that have done really well over the last uh, few years, and also more recently of some of the stocks with the retail trading activity, some of these very, you know, because if you look at the trading activity of them, it's either these they're uh, buying these mega cap tech stocks or buying these very low value uh, stocks where they can use a lot of leverage to, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, like uh, trade up. And I think that those are the two pockets of the market that I'm most concerned about. Instead, I feel that some of the more defensive or some of the more international stocks, emerging markets, those are the stocks which could do relatively well in the coming decade. So big leadership change underway in the marketplace. That's what we have to see and cut through the volatility and see, uh, see it for that rather than get lost in the weeds. Yeah. So it sort of argues for a pushback to the fundamentals and doing the analysis on companies if that's how you trade. Like that guy was saying, I've, I've gone from doing 40 hours to 80 hours. And arguably, that's what it requires, um, at least if you're a longer term investor. Um, I want to talk to you about the metaverse as well, because we were having a meta moment before. Again, I, I mentioned I rudely cut you off. And you were telling me, and I'm quoting you, requiems for the tangible are premature. Explain why. You know, there's so much hype about the metaverse. Uh, it keeps featuring in all the co companies' quarterly earnings. We see it all over emblazoned uh, uh, online and in the media. And my point is that, yeah, great. Uh, the metaverse is here to stay. But we may have forgotten here that the physical economy still exists. What do I mean by that? It's housing. It's commodities. It's even uh, workers uh, that, you know, we're so caught up in the technology and the tech mania, and the, you know, which is all very exciting that we are not investing enough in the physical economy. There's a real shortage of commodities, as we spoke about, real shortage of workers, real shortage of housing, which people still demand. The millennials still want to buy housing. Uh, you know, it's typically in the uh, like uh, in the 30s when people buy their uh, first home often. So my point is a big shortage going on there. And there's a big oversupply and overhype about the metaverse. So again, in the coming few years, I expect stocks and sectors linked to the physical economy to do much better than uh, the metaverse, where I think a lot of the hype, a lot of the promise is already priced in. So in a way, if I were to just take 
it down simply to one big bet it would be long some of the physical economy like the commodities and potentially against that short some of this hype of the metaverse and tech that's taken place in the last few years because that's where people are over invested and it's in the commodity and the physical side uh, of the economy where people are under invested and you want to be where people are under invested not over invested basically what you're saying is behind every avatar is a human <laughs> exactly. And that human matters more. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to sort of say there. And I think <laughs> that will pay itself out in the coming uh, few years. Yeah. And, and very quickly, um, Rusha, I read recently some comments at Roblox, which is what all the kids are playing. Over half of American children are on Roblox. Just given what you've seen for developing nations and rising nations and the, the sort of passage of time, do children grow up and other responsibilities take over. You have to pay a mortgage, you have to buy a car, you have to put your children through school. For everyone that argues that um, these, this, we've got a generation now that's grown up in metaverses, so they understand it better, they care more about it perhaps than you and I understand. Do you buy that or do you, would you make the argument that other priorities rule when eventually you're forced to grow up? She says still. No, there are some structural changes which are going on. There's no question about that. It's something I've written about again, that I think that gaming is the new source of entertainment. The source uh, of revenue that we're getting from gaming is far greater now than, let's say, the box office in movies or even the music industry. So that's a structural change which is going on. I think that, so habits will change. We are going to, we are all spending more time online and digitally. I'm not arguing against that. I'm just saying that if you look at the demand for things like cars, for things like housing, this is not slowing down even among the younger people who think that you know uh, life is all about the metaverse, but we're not seeing that in actual demand numbers. So yes, there are structural changes which are going on. I'm very aware of that. We have to all recognize that, uh, that uh, things like gaming is the source of entertainment of the future, is already there now, the revenues have already exploded, but people are still demanding to live in a home, still demanding to use a car, uh, yeah. still demanding some kind of a job. And that's not going away. And so that's the point I'm trying to make, which is that, yes, recognize the structural changes, but also that don't ignore at your peril about where demand is still strong and where people are underinvested. Yes. Don't yes. let your excitement about the virtual overtake the importance of the physical. Rishi Sharma. Exactly. Great to have you yeah. with you. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Your stocks are up and running this Wednesday, and we're continuing to see strong gains for the tech stocks in particular. Tech now up four days in a row, boosted by strong results from Google parent company Alphabet. Shares of the Fang favorite are sharply higher in early trade. Alphabet also taking an Alphabet on its future, too, splitting its stock 20 for 1 later this year. Facebook parent company Meta and Amazon report earnings later this week, too. So all eyes on those names as well. In the meantime, U.S. President Joe Biden has approved the deployment of thousands of additional troops to Eastern Europe. We expect to hear more next hour when the Pentagon provides an update. This comes as new satellite images reveal Russia has further bolstered its military presence in the region. CNN's Clarissa Ward visited Ukrainian troops deployed near the Russian border, and she joins us live now from eastern Ukraine. Clarissa, it's a privilege to have you on the show. Clearly, we are hearing a cacophony of noise from capital cities all around the region and the world. To be honest, 
you're at the pivotal point, I think, trying to understand what those on the border are saying. How are they feeling at this moment? Yeah, Julia, it's truly extraordinary because, as you said, we we see the news coming out of Washington. We see the satellite imagery. We see the buildup of Russian troops and heavy weaponry all around uh, Ukraine. And yet on the ground in the city of Mariupol, which, by the way, if the Russians did launch some kind of an invasion, would be one of the first cities to know about it, if not the first, people are relatively calm. They don't believe that there is going to be a war. And even on the front lines, soldiers told us they're ready, but they just don't think it's going to happen. This is Ukraine's first line of defense if Russia decides to invade. And it is basic. Half a dozen soldiers in snow-covered trenches. No sign of heavy weapons. Russian-backed separatists are just half a mile away. Every day. He's saying that every night there's fighting once it gets dark. These front lines have been frozen for years. A Russian offensive would change that in an instant. But the alarm in Washington is not shared here. What's amazing to see is that despite the buildup of tanks and heavy weaponry on the Russian side of the border, which is less than 20 miles from here, here on the Ukrainian side, there's no sense at all that anyone is preparing for an invasion. The sergeant here asks we not give his name. He says he doesn't expect conflict, but he is prepared. Our commanders told us that we must be alert, he tells us. We are ready to meet guests from Russia. What kind of weapons do you have at this position? Do you have any heavy weaponry? I don't see any, but I just want to make sure. You don't need to see, and the enemy doesn't need to see, he says. But we have everything. What they don't have here are many layers of defense. Driving from the front, we see just a handful of checkpoints. If the Ukrainian army can't hold this area, Russian forces could reach Mariupol, a port city of half a million, in hours. Despite the threat, life here goes on much as normal. At the local market, stalls are open and the shelves are full. I'd love to know if you think that there will be a war. We don't want war. We have children and grandchildren, Natalia says. And there won't be war. We believe that. Some, like Erjan, say that America is exaggerating the threat. No, there will not be a war, he says. It's only Biden who thinks this. It's interesting talking to people here. Nobody seems to be remotely concerned about the prospect of an imminent invasion. These people are no strangers to war. All around Mariupol, the hollowed-out remnants of villages destroyed and abandoned by fighting between Ukrainian forces and pro-Russian separatists. But whether moved by denial or disbelief, These soldiers and the people they're protecting don't expect history to repeat itself. For now, they wait and they watch and they hope. 
Now, now, Julia, the U.S. has been giving a steady stream of weapons to Ukraine. Among those weapons, these much-coveted anti-tank Javelin missiles. But one of the rules of the ceasefire agreement along the front lines, and we saw that that ceasefire is being breached regularly, but nonetheless, one of the rules is that no heavy weaponry and, uh, of course, therefore, no Javelin missiles can be brought to the front. That, though, really could present the Ukrainian military with a, a, a quandary in the event that there was some kind of a lightning speed Russian offensive across that border. And to be honest, Julia, what you see overall here is that the Ukrainians really are outmatched, outnumbered and outgunned on the ground and also in the air. Yeah, fascinating reporting. Thank you so much for that, Clarissa. Great to have you with us today. Clarissa Ward there. All this week, we're exploring the ways people, communities, businesses and industries in Japan are innovating and preparing for a world beyond the pandemic. Today, CNN's Blake Essig follows one woman's mission to improve accessibility. Two decades ago, at age 22, Yurika Oda's life changed forever. She was diagnosed with distal myopathy, a group of rare disorders typically affecting the muscles in one's arms and legs. It is said that as it progresses, it eventually makes a person bedridden. For me, it has progressed since then, and I became a wheelchair user when I was 26. When Oda had a son, she dreamt about taking him to the beach. But being wheelchair-bound, it didn't seem possible. When my son was about three years old, I decided to look for a barrier-free beach and found one about three hours from my house, and we were able to go and enjoy it. I wondered what I had been struggling with for the past three years, and I began to think that information could change the lives of wheelchair users, and I wanted to deliver the information properly to them. In fact, it inspired Oda to start her own YouTube channel to provide information to other wheelchair users. In 2017, she launched the crowdsourced map application Wheellog, allowing users to post and search locations of barrier-free facilities like bathrooms and elevators, as well as safe routes wheelchair users can take. The app also lets them interact and ask each other questions. Like, what do you do on a rainy day? And how do you cut your hair in a wheelchair? From lockdowns to social distancing, the pandemic has restricted the ways we move around. For wheelchair users, that reality is amplified. Oda hopes to help alleviate those difficulties by creating more inclusivity for the times they do go outside. Today, Oda's touring the Aquatic Center, a venue built for the 2020 Games, to learn more about its barrier-free facilities to add to the Wheelog app. Many people might not have thought about diversity or barrier-free facilities without the Olympics and Paralympics. I was very impressed that the barrier-free facilities went beyond just the minimum requirements. For Oda, the blueprint of how we move around is evolving, and she's hoping the work many have put in can inspire people for the better in the future. I hope that this app will be utilized across various fields, including education. I would like to make Japan one of the most barrier-free developed countries in the world. 
And finally, on first move, the International Space Station will be retired in a rather dramatic way. NASA says the ISS will be crashed into the Pacific Ocean in early 2031. Since launching in 2000, the Space Lab has hosted more than 200 astronauts from 19 different countries. NASA says commercial space platforms would replace the station. What a shame that we can't save it rather than crash land it in the ocean. I guess that's what's safe. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at jchasleycnn. I guess we've got nine years to find a solution to that. I'll come back to that. Stay safe. Marketplace Asia's next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.